Welcome to the Beacon Church Podcast. Each week we post a sermon from our last Sunday service so you can catch up, review, or share with your friends. We pray as you listen to this week's episode, you're encouraged and equipped to love God, love people, grow in Christ, and serve the world. Well, good morning, everyone. I also want to say a special good morning. My mom and dad are here, right up there. If you guys, um, you know, appreciate uh, any part of, say, like my sense of humor or anything, you can thank him. And if you don't, you can blame him, because that's kind of uh, part of his fault. Uh, Anyway, uh, your brain can be a jerk. I remember uh, reading this and hearing this recently from a a man named John Acuff, and uh, it struck me as sort of ironic, because you know, your brain, if, if anything, should be vested in your best interest, it should be your brain, right? It kind of needs the rest of you to, to make it, to live, to survive, to all that. So, like, your brain should be your best friend, but in actuality, your brain can really be a jerk. Now, you, we, don't get me wrong. Our brains are absolutely incredible, right? They're, they're these incredible gifts. There's these creations from God, and they're amazing in absolutely so many ways. But just like everything else in this sin-fallen world, our brains can be real jerks. Really, I mean, you'd think your brain, of all things, could be trusted. But when you think about it, you're using your brain. How can you really trust that? If, in fact, your brain is the very thing that's causing the problem. And so you have a brain, and then you look at it, and you go, wait a second, can I trust my brain? And you're like, wait, of course I trust my brain. How can I have a thought any other way but that I can trust my brain? But in actuality, if your brain is being a jerk at that moment, maybe it's tricking you into thinking it's not. You see, this is starting to get a little bit convoluted. And so I think when we look at this whole idea, one of the worst things that your brain does is it hampers your life through overthinking. You see, some of you just went, because mm. you're like, yeah, that's exactly what happens. I'm still stuck on the thinking about your thoughts thing, and now we're talking about something else. And so if you have ever had a friend say to you, it's all in your head, or you were totally overthinking this, which I actually just did to Conrad this morning, just because I knew what we were talking about. And I was like, I just said it to someone. And so if someone says that to you, Conrad, then you might be totally overthinking this. If a friend has said to you, you have not made a decision about that yet. Like we, you should have been able to make a decision already about that. If you had a mentor, whoever said, listen, you just got to get out of your own way. You got to get out of your own way. Well, why are you in your own way? Because something is going wrong in the way you're thinking and processing information. And you're saying, I just this or that or this or that. And all of a sudden, you find out that you are an overthinker. Now, all of us suffer the negative impacts of overthinking at some times. Maybe you have spent hours or maybe even days ruminating on something stupid. Maybe something stupid that you said or did. 
And, and you just, you keep rehearsing it over and over. You're like, oh, I said that in front of my friend, or I said that, you know, in front of some, some coworkers, or I was at that big presentation, and why did I say that? Ah, oh. and now you just keep thinking about it over and over and over again. Maybe you're quick to recall that moment that you were left out of the strategy meeting. And you're like, wait a second, why was I left out? How, when that door closed, shouldn't I have been on the other side of the door? And you're thinking to yourself, what, what was that about? And then, and then all of a sudden there are these runaway thoughts that are starting, why was I left out? I wonder what they're talking about. Are they talking about me? What if they are talking about me? Is this a problem for me? Because they're certainly not talking about my promotion. They're probably talking about moving me on. And all of a sudden you're spiraling downward because somebody forgot to include you in an email or because the meeting wasn't involving your area. Spiraling down. You ever notice how easy it is to remember the bully in the neighborhood or the mean girls in junior high? You just, your, your brain just kind of goes there. You know, if you had, you know, your, your parents body shamed you when you were a kid. You just think about this all the time. It comes back time and again. Oh my goodness. Why? What happened? Why'd they say it? I can't believe I'm this way. The brain brings those moments back again and again with no effort. They just sort of show up. So you finally got a date. COVID has been tough on the dating scene. You get a date. You're pretty excited about it. But then you start to worry. Maybe my, my date isn't going to like the restaurant that I made reservations at. Did I make reservations? Oh my goodness, I forgot to make reservations. If I forgot to make reservations, why do I do this? I'm sabotaging my own love life. They're gonna, I'm so irresponsible. You would think I would have made the reservation. Now I'm going to forget. Now we're not going to get in. And I promised we were going to have... Oh wait, there's the email. Okay. I did confer, that was my confirmation email. I actually did make the reservation. I am not a loser. I am not going to die alone. Excellent. What if she doesn't like the restaurant? What if, wait, what if she's like an animal rights person? I've taken her to a steakhouse. Why didn't I actually think about that? Why? I am so insensitive. I am always so insensitive. I never think about other people. I'm just thinking about the fact that I like the steakhouse, but what if she doesn't like steakhouses? And then what's going to happen? She's not going to like the date, and then I'm going to die alone. Because it always ends with dying alone. I don't know, understand why the brain goes there, but like we're always going to end up dying alone. Now, if, if this is in any way your experience, then you very well might be an overthinker. And your friend, your brain, supposed to be your greatest ally, has become quite a jerk. Now, John Acuff is the writer that I was quoting here. Uh, we owe him a debt of gratitude for this series. We heard him give a talk, and we really loved it. Those of us who heard it were like, this is so great. This is gold. Now, it's a secular leadership book. Uh, but John is uh, actually a, a follower of Jesus, and he's got a whole lot of biblical principles woven through it. And we're going to highlight a lot of those principles. Uh, but his book and uh, the, the art and the series and a lot of the ideas are coming from John. And so if you really like this kind of stuff and what we're talking about in this series, then uh, you really got to thank John Acuff. If there's stuff that doesn't make any sense or is confusing, you can blame me for that part uh, because John actually does a really great job in talking about it. And he defined overthinking for us, and I love the simplicity of this. He says, overthinking 
is coming up on the screen here. Overthinking is when what you think gets in the way of what you want. I love the simplicity. When, you're, when, when, when overthinking is actually hindering you from getting what it is you want, then this might be a problem. Now, and you understand why, because constant thinking isn't necessarily the issue. It might very well uh, serve you great, depending on what you're doing. If, if you're balancing the books for like, you know, I don't know, like some mega company, some complex like a Berkshire Hathaway or something like that, like, you're, like that's your job, like it's, it's time to get the book straight, you should probably be thinking about that quite a bit. Might even keep you up a couple of nights because you're thinking about it so much and you're trying to figure things out. And you know, you're negotiating world peace between two countries that are like going to war. Absolutely constant thinking is going to be a normal part of that. And that's one of the great gifts. What you, could, you could apply such focused and strategic thought with our brains. It's amazing. It's, it's incredible to be able to do that and to, to solve great problems. But when persistent and repetitive and often unwanted thoughts keep jumping in, crowding in, and then crowding out your brains, not so helpful anymore. And if, think, if overthinking gets in the way of you living a God-honoring life, then this is a big problem. It's a serious issue. And the brain leans toward the negative, which again, it makes sense, right? So, you know, you're a stone age cave person and you, you've con you, you gotta know that the hungry saber-toothed tiger, uh, he lives in those caves and you should avoid those caves at all costs. So you're like, okay, this is bad. Something bad could happen if I go over there. Or it's the dry season and you wake up in a panic because your few crops need to be watered diligently and you need to watch after your herds. And so, and so you're, you're, you're thinking about these things because like your life depends on it. And so the brain kind of dips toward the negative so often. But if that isn't your normal life situation, then all of the, 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 the rushing of negative thoughts and all of this, this fear that keeps, keeps crowding everything else out inside our brains and all of this stuff, it creates this cacophony in our mental and in our emotional and in our spiritual lives that tears down our souls. It drowns out our relationship with each other and it damages our relationship with God. So overthinking isn't benign. It's, it's, you know, it's not like supercharged daydreaming or anything like that. It's not benign. It is, it's troubling in deep and, and unsettling ways. It might very well be getting in the way of the kind of life that you want and the kind of life that God is calling you to. So it's costly, even dangerous to your personal or professional or spiritual life. And it's considered to be one of the most costly issues people face. Well over 90, 95, 98% sometimes in surveys report that they are afflicted with overthinking on a regular basis. 
So most of us have struggled with it or will. And it wastes time and it, it saps creativity and it, 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 it pulls down our productivity and it drains you and it causes many to be crippled by inaction and indecision. And some of you are like, yes, that happens to me all the time. All the time. Yet you notice you never have to schedule like a mental breakdown. Right, you never have, they're not like a full-blown thing either, but like I'm just, you know, those, those moments of crisis where you're gonna either like have a moment, you're gonna have a few hours, you're gonna have kind of a meltdown or you're gonna cry and you're gonna like, and you're never like, hey, you know what? Friday's looking pretty clear. I think, I think between one and three would be a really good time for me to deal with kind of this, uh, all this emotional stuff going on and me being overwhelmed. I'll just pencil it in there when the alarm goes off at three, all done. This is great. You don't have to schedule these sorts of things. You don't have to calendar a meeting with your insecurities or put it on your to-do list. They're going to they're gonna squeeze their way into your schedule. They're going to make certain that it's something you have to pay attention to even when you don't want to. Last week was a Vision Sunday. It was the kickoff of our ministry year. And we spoke about how we want to help each and every one of us experience uh, an oasis in the desert. We want to be able to experience this, this sort of shalom, this peace that the scriptures promise. And we want to do that because then we not only benefit from that journey with God, but then we also get to offer that to others. We get to, as we said last week, we get to, we get to pull a city up out of the desert through the power of God, a place where people who are, are hungry and thirsty and lost and emotionally overwhelmed, sad and depressed and weak, where they can come and find strength, encouragement, hope, and a home. That's what we can do. That's, and if we are going to do that, that's, that's why we're kicking off this ministry year with this series. Because if we're going to do that, then we've got to deal with this issue in our brains. Because we're never going to be able to experience it and give it to others if we don't think long, hard thoughts about our own thoughts. So the Bible promises us that we are able to turn our thoughts into incredible allies. We can, we, can, we can utilize our brain as a tool to help us succeed in life and become everything that God is desiring for us. And, so that we, can, and we can do that when we recognize that our thoughts are really like a constant soundtrack to our lives. If you can think about your thoughts in that way, that it's a soundtrack to our lives and that you have way more control over that soundtrack than you might have been led to believe by your brain. You have incredible ability to shape that soundtrack. Now, it's going to be difficult. In fact, in some ways, some soundtracks, especially those rooted in trauma, are going to be very, very difficult to stop. I mean, think about it. Do you ever really stop thinking? Like, try it. Ready? <laughs> Count of three, 15 seconds. You're going to think about nothing. Ready? We're going to do it. Ready? One, two, three. Nothing. See, now I'm counting in my head, so that doesn't count. Because, like, if I'm counting in my head to 15, I'm already thinking. And some of you are like, is he really going to make us go 15 seconds? Because I don't want 15 seconds of silence. And there's no possible way I'm going to start stressing about all of these things that he's talking about. 
I'm going to start thinking about my overthinking, and then I'm going to have anxiety about that because I know I'm actually an overthinker, and here I am not even thinking about what he's saying. Can he please just move on and give me something to hope for? And there's your 15 seconds. It just ended. And here's the thing. Soundtracks are crazy powerful, but they can be maneuvered. They can be turned down. They can be turned up. They, you have way more control, and their power is hard to overstate. We found a fun uh, little video that it explains kind of the power of uh, soundtracks. What many people may not realize is that music is an incredibly important part of film and television. If used correctly, it can enhance the emotions of any scene. For example, the music you're listening to right now is making me seem like the coolest, suavest guy in town. Get that wrong, it sounds like this. What many people may not realize is that music is an incredibly important part of film and television. Do you see what I mean? That was just one example of how music can change the viewer's perspective. Let's have a look at a couple more. this scene, we can assume that the man opening the case is revealing something to be unpleasant. Although... soundtrack, it makes it seem as if the thing that was inside the case isn't scary, but rather upbeat and joyful. So now you get an idea of how powerful music is. Clever, eh? Imagine your life, the same circumstances with a different soundtrack being supplied. And where's the soundtrack come from? You. It's coming from your brain. It's coming from how you have processed all of your past, your history, your beliefs, your values, the biblical truths that can begin to, to unwind, unravel, and replace soundtracks. We have incredible power according to the, the, to the scriptures to work these soundtracks in a way that God desires to bring us shalom with him. You know, we might have these broken soundtracks that trouble and haunt and terrorize us. Are those the ones we're going to continue to play? Soundtracks of, of lost loves and hurt feelings and all of these embarrassing moments that I just, I keep thinking about over and over and over and over again. Shame and rejection and fear. And they all just keep underscoring our narrative. So what to do? We have to, we have to weaken 
our harmful soundtracks. We gotta, we gotta figure out strategies to turn down the volume of the harmful soundtracks and crank up the powerful and life-giving soundtracks that we are provided with again and again in God's word. So there's this fascinating example of a, a guy in the Bible who lost control of his thoughts and he let some insidious soundtracks kind of creep in and dominate and ruin his life and the lives of many. And so the story is of Saul. This is King Saul. And uh, he was the first king of Israel. Israel was clamoring for a king. God didn't really want to give him a king. The prophet Samuel, who was like a rock star of the Old Testament, he didn't want them to clamor for a king, and they just kept clamoring for a king. And so they decided, uh, God decided to give them a king, and they anointed Saul as the first king of the nation of Israel. Spoiler alert, if you want to read it in 1 Samuel, it didn't go so well. And so in, in the, the reading of this particular story, we get to see time and again how Saul had these damaging soundtracks, a narrative that was running about who he was or about his life or about his past and even about his future. And when he, when he continued to, to reinforce those or let those be reinforced, we see continually bad decisions being made that end up causing great heartache. We actually get a hint of it at the very beginning. It's in, in uh, 1 Samuel 9. He says, just then Saul approaches Samuel at the gateway and asked, can you please tell me where the seer's house is? So they're asking Samuel, who's the prophet, but he's called the seer. I am the seer, Samuel replied. Go up to the place of worship ahead of me. We will eat there together. And in the morning, I will tell you what you want to know and send you on your way. Samuel already knew Saul was coming. Saul was looking for him because he'd lost some donkeys. But God told Samuel, by this time tomorrow, you're going to meet the future king of Israel. So Samuel, he kind of gets to impress Saul with some of these things because he already knows stuff that he isn't supposed to know. But because he's a prophet, he knows. Don't worry about those donkeys that were lost three days ago, for they've been found. And I'm here to tell you that you and your family are the focus of all Israel's hopes. Saul replied, but I'm only from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe in Israel, and my family is the least important of all the families of that tribe. Why are you talking to me like this? I was just looking for my donkeys. And now you're like, you and your family are the hope of Israel. Like, what? No, 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 no. We're not the hope of anything. I just hope to get my donkeys back home because that's all that I really care about right now. Just there's a few donkeys. That's it. But you can hear the beginning of this. It's the smallest tribe in Israel. And, and we're the smallest family. We're not important. We're not up for the task. I'm not able to do this on my own. We start to see the, the fear and the insecurity. Why are you talking with me like this? It's as if the narrative that Samuel is trying to put into Saul, Saul's actively battling it. Why are you talking to me like this? And Samuel must know that this is going on, that he's got these insecurities about his family, and he's got this, 
this sense of fear that is, is developing. And, and it seems like Samuel is trying to help rewrite the narrative that Saul is playing over and over in his head. Samuel goes on to say, he says, uh, after he says, why are you talking to me like this? He says, at daybreak the next morning, Samuel called to Saul, get up, it's time you are on your way. So Saul got ready and he and Samuel left the house together. And when they reached the edge of town, Samuel told Saul to send his servant on ahead. So he wanted a private conversation with Saul. So this amazing, gifted, great, famous prophet was like, I gotta talk to you one-on-one -on -one here, Saul. Because I know something is wrong in here. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna speak some words into your life. And I'm gonna speak some truths that I know from God. I'm the prophet. You can trust what I'm about to say. After the servant was gone, Samuel said, stay here for I have received a special message for you from God. A special message. This is for you, Saul. You need to hear this. This is coming right from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil. He poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and he said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. Imagine this, he takes the flask, he takes the symbol of anointing and he pours it over him. And how long did he, he reek of olive oil? And so the whole trip home, he's gotta just be smelling the aroma of the olive oil thinking, what just happened? It's as if, it's as if Samuel was trying to reinforce a different soundtrack. He was trying to speak something into Saul, knowing Saul was gonna resist it. In fact, on the way home to go see about the donkeys, he gives Saul three different things that are about to happen. And he tells him, this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, so that he could trust Samuel, that Samuel really does speak for God. And all of those things happen. So here he is smelling of olive oil, marching home. All of these different weird things are starting to happen that the prophet had predicted. Then some amazing thing happens, and he himself starts prophesying. You'd think by now the soundtrack would start to get reinforced, turned over, and Saul would start saying, it sounds like God has an incredible plan for me. You'd think. That's not the way the story goes. Samuel goes over to Saul's family. He's about to install him as the king, which is gonna be like the public inauguration. And finally, Saul, son of Kish, was chosen from among them. But when they looked for him, he had disappeared. So they asked the Lord, where is he? That's how good he was hiding. They had to ask God, like, where's Saul? And the Lord replied, he's hiding among the baggage. He's hiding. You imagine this? Hey, we're about to appoint your king. Bring him out. Saul, come here. Crickets. Nothing. They're like, Hey, uh, someone go find Saul. And they're like in the back room, they're like searching through. They're like, Saul, where's Saul? And they're like, oh, is that his foot in the baggage? Like, someone's got to go over there and like drag him. How did it go? Do they have to drag the guy out of the baggage? And what is baggage even? Anyway, it's weird. I, I got to look that word up. And so they, they found him and brought him out and he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. The prophet is there to anoint him, inaugurate him, and he's in hiding. After all that he had seen and after all the promises of God and after the prophet himself said, you don't understand, God is pouring out his special favor on you. you, you, you and this is the moment. I'm out. 
I'm going hiding. Fear, maybe a sense of inadequacy, whatever it was, there was a soundtrack that was forming in his mind that he couldn't trust Samuel and he couldn't trust God. So much so that later, the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my commands. And this starts a terrible season in the history of Israel. God goes and anoints another king, David. And there's this battle and this near civil war-like stuff going on in the nation of Israel. As Saul now clings to power that has been taken away from him by God and he just continues to go on distrusting God and wreaking havoc on the kingdom. Now, in contrast to that, and you can do a lot of contrast between Saul and David, we actually get to look at David as a young boy and we get to see that the soundtracks of inadequacy or fear that all of us carry, these are the kinds of things that David had antidotes for. He had ways of turning them down and he had ways of turning them up. And we actually get to learn a lot about David because he wrote a lot of the Psalms and so we get insights into his heart and his, his humility and his dependence on God and, and all of these really beautiful things we get to kind of see inside a poet's heart. Uh, but he was also just a fierce warrior and leader. And so as a young boy, you'll remember the story uh, from like way back in the day of uh, David and Goliath. And so he was a young boy and, and the Philistines are on one side and the, the nation of Israel is on another. And every day, a giant comes out, like a massive man, real tall, heavily weaponed, and just, uh, he's been fighting ever since he was a boy. And he comes out and he terrorizes the Israelites. And he, he just shouts at them all day long, yelling things, screaming at them, hey, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you guys send someone out and do battle with me? And if we fight, the two of us, if I lose, we'll be your slaves. And if you guys lose, you'll be our slaves. And of course, they look at this giant and they're like, well, that's, we're not going to win that battle. <laughs> like we could send out 10 men and they're not going to be able to take, take this guy down. He's just too fierce, too imposing. David visits the battle lines. And we find it says, David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance of Israel? He says that because Saul had already promised really cool things to the guy that can finally rid Israel of this, of this tormenting giant of a man. He said largely, you know, you get one of my daughters uh, and that's kind of a cool thing to be married to the king's daughter and uh, your family doesn't pay taxes forever. And some of you are like, I think I'd want to take that. I, I think I would try. Like, you, I'm surprised there wasn't a whole line of Israelites just being like, you know what? I mean, we should at least give it a shot if we could get free of these taxes. Um, anyway, ending the defiance of who is this pagan Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? That's where David's mind is at. David doesn't think that there's anyone in Israel that can beat him, beat Goliath. David's convinced that anyone in Israel can beat Goliath if they're standing for the living God. Anyone can. Even a boy, a young man, who isn't trained in combat or warfare, who has never been to war, 
He's a shepherd. He fights off like lions and bears trying to eat his sheep. Like with a staff and with a, with a slingshot. And he's like, Who, how do you defy the armies of the living God? Anyone should be able to beat this Philistine. And these men gave David the same reply. They said, yes, that's what the reward for killing him is. No taxes. But David's got his own soundtracks and narratives and some that are being forced on him by others. When David's oldest brother, Eliab, often you know, brothers come in the picture, there's always trouble. Uh, his older brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men and he was angry. He hears his younger brother's voice. He was the baby of the family. He's like, David, he's irritating me again. And what are you doing around here anyway? He demanded, what about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? Calling into question, like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be, having to, you're supposed to be doing stuff back home, you know, with, with, with the ladies of the house, watching the sheep. We're here doing battle. Go home, little boy. You're supposed to be home watching the sheep. I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. He's got his own insecurities, no doubt. We all do. He's got his own soundtracks running, and they're being reinforced by the people who know him best and are closest to him, and they're trying to, 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 to tear this piece down for him, and he's saying, what have I done now? David replied, what have I done now? I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. David's like, listen, I'm, tell it to the hand. I'm out. I don't, want, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know it. I'm out. He's turning down the negative soundtracks and he's cranking up the ones that are going to bring him face to face with a giant that with a slingshot he takes out because he's standing in the place of the living God. The Bible gives us a very simple solution for this. Take ownership of your thoughts. And that's what this whole series is gonna be about. We are gonna be training each other to take ownership of our thoughts. And it's rooted in this promise from the scriptures that we, by the way, this is Saul speaking, other Saul. This is Saul who's Paul in the New Testament. Don't get, that's, I know, confusing. Anyway, we, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. That's what the whole of this series is going to be about. We're gonna take every thought captive. We so rarely decide beforehand what thoughts we're going to take into the day. Rarely do we talk about what thoughts we're going to allow to influence our interactions. We think of our thoughts as something that happened to us, like the weather just happens, there's nothing we can do about it. And so our thoughts were like, you know, people get, they run away, their thoughts just ran away. They got lost in their head. We, we talk about it as if it's something that is happening to us. And the scriptures say, your thoughts aren't happening to you. You can take every thought captive. You get to think about your thoughts. The brain is remarkable like that. If well-trained, it can step aside and look back at itself and take every thought captive. We're going to work through this. We're going to be learning to retire, replace, and repeat. We're going to work on this process so that every thought we have is going to be made obedient to Christ. Obedient to Christ. Every 
biblical truth to every area of life. This is where we get to claim the, the promises that God makes. We get to trust in his power. We get to, to, to develop our faith. We get to look at the scriptures and say, our God is a good God. And these things will, will start to shape our soundtracks in incredibly powerful ways. This is where we get to obey every command. And we get to work out how to live the life of Christ every single moment of every single day in every single thought. Every thought captive. And that process of seizing every thought, of challenging it, and of forcing it into submission to Christ is going to help us turn this overthinking problem into, into an incredible gift from God so that we might learn to live each and every moment in the presence of our Savior, to pray without ceasing, to meditate day and night, to reflect on our lives in a way that honor our King and our Savior. The way that John Acuff uh, phrases it, he says, I discovered how to turn overthinking from a super problem into a superpower. And though it's a little corny, that's what we're going to be working on for the duration of this series. So your homework for this week is pretty straightforward. What we're going to do is take our thoughts captive. So this week, start stepping outside of your thoughts and analyzing and critiquing them. See what thoughts are running through your mind. Set yourself a timer if it helps. Every, every 30 minutes, let something beep and you go, wait, what am I thinking about right now? And don't assume that your thoughts are happening to you and that you have no power or ability to change or shift or turn some down and turn others up. You do. We're going to talk about that over the next few weeks, but for now, take notice. Take notice of them. Step outside for just a bit each day. Maybe some of you, if you're journalers, that's great. Start journaling it. What am I? What am I thinking about? How much time am I really thinking about? You know, I just spent 10 minutes fretting about this thing that happened at work three weeks ago, and I spend 10 minutes every day. Go ahead and add that up over the course of a year and see how much of your life has been squandered in these little 10-minute bits of meaningless worry and fret. So think about it. Journal it out if it helps you. And take some time to figure out what it would look like to think about my thoughts. Sound good? All right, we hope you join us for the whole of this series. But let me pray. Father, we're asking that as we enter into this whole bit, this whole conversation, Lord, what we need from you is the confidence and the awareness of your power and of your goodness in our lives. And Father, what we need from you is this truth that our thoughts do not control us. But instead, these are, this is a gift, of, this is a, a powerful gift that you have given us so that we might walk rightly with you, that we might dwell in your presence. Lord, that's what we want more and more, to make this community of faith, to be a spiritual family whose, whose minds are brought into full submission to your truth and your goodness and your power. That's what we want and nothing less, Father. We pray that as a result of this series and being here today and coming in the weeks, that, Lord, we would be that people more and more. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. If you enjoyed the sermon, want to learn more about Jesus, or get to know our community, please visit beacon.church to get connected. We would love to hear from you.